Welcome to Forward, the podcast where we connect the community with the classroom. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers at Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. Today's guest is the recipient of this year's Faculty of Humanities Award for Teaching Excellence. Dr. Elizabeth Vlasek is an associate professor with the Department of History, and her courses include 20th century European and world history, Weimar and Nazi Germany, comparative urban history, and women's and gender history. She has also taught a directed reading course in historic gardening using Brock University's Community Garden and directed students in research projects involving oral history. Dr. Vlasic's research interests include the cultural history of war, women's and gender history, border studies, nations and nationalism, critical heritage studies, and the politics of memory. Most recently, she has been bringing her students together with members of the local community to work on Niagara history projects. This includes work with the Niagara on the Lake Tennis Club and the Canada Games, which will be held in Niagara in the summer of 2022. Dr. Vlasic is the co-director with Dr. Julie Stevens in sports management of the Sport Oral History Archive, a digital interactive archive preserving local and national sporting legacies through the collection of oral history interviews and photographs. So welcome. Thank you, Alison. I am so glad to have you on. We have chatted about your research and your work various times for for Brock News, and you have uh, certainly very you, you are certainly very busy with many projects. So thank you for making the time for us today. Um, it's hard to know where to begin, but first off, congratulations on receiving the teaching award. And perhaps we could start with um, a little bit about your approach to teaching, um, and then we'll get into some of your specific projects. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, winning that award was a, was a great honor, and, and uh, I was really, really honored um, and, and humbled by, by having received that, considering how many amazing colleagues I have in the Faculty of Humanities. So when I think about teaching, um, one of the things that I, I have noticed, and I mean, I've been teaching for over 15 years now. And something that I've noticed is that there are these certain things that kind of have, that I really focus on with my teaching and, and really it's placing people, placing connections and the community at the center of my teaching. And so in my teaching, I, I also see sort of these four major areas that I incorporate into everything that I do. And, and the first one is mentorship, the importance of Teaching is not just a transmission of knowledge, but as sort of this ongoing, almost dialogic relationship with, with, uh, between the instructor and the student. And I see myself really as a, as a guide and a co-learner. I, I love to continue to learn. This is what I love about, about my job, is that I'm constantly learning new things and learning from my colleagues and learning from my students. And so mentorship uh, with my students, with my directed research students, my MA students, but even my teaching assistants and my research assistants, I, I really see that that, the, that role of, of being a mentor and a guide is, is so important in the work that I do. Something else that um, I really focus on in my work, and this is something that that's become much more prevalent in my work in the last maybe five years, and that is the role of collaboration. And I've I've really I've discovered that the the work that brings me the most joy is the work that I've done through collaboration, either with other colleagues in the department and other departments at Brock, staff, other students, as well as members of the community, and and sort of bringing these ideas together and, and learning from each other and sharing those ideas with each other. So collaboration and um, also experiential education. So all of my courses now 
have a component of experiential learning Im- embedded within them. And from first year to the MA courses that I've taught, there is a component of experiential. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, to, to incorporate more service learning, work integrated learning opportunities for the students to, to provide them with that additional kind of experience and, and learning opportunity. And, um, and then finally, the, something that really motivates my work and my teaching practice is to make teaching and learning transform, transformational. And transformational, not only for the students, but also for, um, it, it's been transformational for, for me as a, as a teacher and as, as a practitioner as well, that that, uh, that that transformation happens to all of us as we're, as we're working together. And I also see that the benefits too, through working with community of the transformational, uh, the tr- transformational opportunities for our communities as well as they work with our students on, on various projects. So these are really the kind of the, the four pillars of, of my teaching practice. Yeah, it really puts the the lie to the old stereotype of the historian, um, you know, surrounded by stacks of dusty books, toiling away silently, quietly, all by themselves, and then uh, appearing on a stage to transmit information. It's it's a very active and very engaging process, isn't it? Well, I, I also love the sitting in a book in the, in the dusty libraries and <laughs> the dusty archives. That's that's also something that I, that I enjoy. But I I've found that more and more, I and especially you know the past the past year has been very difficult to go into the dusty libraries and archives and 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 seeking out community has been something that that I've I've been doing a lot more just in the past 14 months as well is uh and doing it remotely and virtually but still wanting to have that that connection so yeah I, I like the old-fashioned stuff too but but I <laughs> but I love the new collaboration for me is, yeah. is what as I said it brings me the most joy I think there will always be there will always be a place um for for our archivist and librarian friends in the study of history and I know that you have collaborated as well. You've you've worked quite closely with the archivists and librarians at Brock to to make those places come alive for students as well. Just out of curiosity, um, are there any particular moments that um, stand out in your mind as opportunities where you've learned from students or students have um, created a transformational moment for you as a scholar or as a teacher or as a person? Oh gosh, there's so many. Uh, I've as I said, there there've been these. Um, there's been, you know, individual students who've um, who've made huge impact on me just with the work that they've done, but also just groups of students and, and actual sort of communities and classes that have really challenged me and made me a better teacher through the work that we've done together and how they've responded to my teaching and then how I've then responded and reflected on the work that I've done and, and how and how that's um, how I can incorporate what I've learned into the course again or into the new courses. I guess one of the ones um, that I can think of most recently, and I and I know that you we were going to talk about this, but I, I would have to say that my experience with that with the historical gardening course was a really transformative moment for me in terms of what teaching could be and the relationship that I could have with my students and the work that we could achieve together. And because it was so different and because everything was removed from the classroom, it was everything was, was sort of changed and the, the boundaries of, of, of how we, we do history was, were, were really 
changed and challenged during that project. And what came out of it is, on the one hand, that I wanted to teach this course again, but it was also just the what I learned from the students and the, the ways in which just to, to give the, those of those of you who don't know what this course was about. <laughs> yes, tell us. Tell us what this course is about. <laughs> so the course, it was a directed research course that I did uh, a couple of summers ago. And, uh, and I had two students working with me. And they researched and grew and studied a garden. So they, they were up at the Brock Community Garden and they had a plot and they did some independent research and decided on a particular historic period that they wanted to focus on and uh, what gardening would have, what gardens would have looked like or what would have been grown at that time. And they built these gardens and they grew them and they blogged about them and they had an Instagram, you know, Instagram posts about their gardens and they reflected on the gardens and then they presented their gardens at the end of the summer. So it was quite a long you know, drawn out process from May to August. Um, but one of the things that really struck me is that I was dealing with two students who were so different in in their approaches and the way in which they studied and thought about things and how they wrote and um, like day and night. And one of the things that, that came, became clear, though, is that as a result of the way the course was built and designed and the way in which I was assessing and evaluating their work, it allowed them to each be able to shine in the areas that they, that they enjoyed the most, that they were really skilled at. And, and I, it was, you know, you, you learn about these, these theories. You learn about how they're different types of learners. And as, a, as an educator, you know, I do all the reading and, and I try to incorporate universal design as much as I can. But then I actually saw it. And, and I witnessed it and I studied it and I, and it was, it was so clear that if you design a course in a particular way, your students, regardless of, of what their abilities are going into the course, they're going to be able to thrive. And, and so it, that was one of the things that, that, that was the most lasting impression that, that it was the, everything about that course, the fact that we were removed from the classroom, we were outdoors, there was so much reflection, there was a lot of um, dialogue and discussion between me and the students, but also that they, they showed me how, how this works in practice. And, and it was, and it was amazing. And, and so when I think about that course, I, it was, it's the course that I, it, it, again, I mean, it's, I think back to it and uh, it, I want to do it again. I've thought about mm-hmm. ways of being able to scale it up so that more students can take it. But I think that more than anything, it's what I learned in terms of my own teaching practice that that's, has stayed with me. And the two students you had, they did very different types of gardens too. You, ha- um, you had one student doing a, a monastic inspired medieval, um, very symmetrical and formal with research about all the herbs and everything. And then you had another student doing a victory garden. Yeah. And, and so the, the two gardens, and that was what was also so fascinating about the two projects is that not only were the, the, the periods that they chose so entirely different and the types of gardens that they had to grow were so entirely different. The way that they actually approached the gardening was entirely different because the gardening that they did in, in many ways reflected the type of garden that they were growing. So for the victory garden, it was very like, okay, I'm growing food and I have to survive and the deer eating all my food and what am I going to do and how do I protect everything? Whereas the monastic garden, there was a lot more kind of contemplation and just being in the garden 
and observing it and um, and just enjoying the beauty because um, the student had, had, was growing a lot of flowers and there were the, the, these herbal, the herbs were, were also really important, but she also just had a lot of very beautiful flowers. And, and so her observations and her experience working in the garden reflected the type of garden um, and just as the, the victory garden was, was a bit more almost utilitarian and like, a and, and there was, a, there in some cases kind of more at stake too, like mm-hmm. these tomatoes had better grow or else we're not going to be eating this, this winter. Yeah. And, um, your students did, did a, a public tour of their, of their plots at the end of August, um, or the, to, towards the, towards the end of August that year. And we, we'll, ha- we'll include some links in the show notes to the Brock news coverage because there's photos and videos. Um, um, but I learned quite a bit from them and and from what they had to say. Um, and I know that your student with the Victory Garden was talking about the role of Victory Gardens in a more propaganda angle rather than an actual practical food supply angle. And then, like you said, um, the monastic garden with its medicine, but also contemplative. It, it was a very, it was very interesting to to watch. So I, I hope you get to do it again because it also made the garden, the community garden, really, really beautiful. <laughs> Having those foxgloves and uh, marigolds and things was really gorgeous. <laughs> um, so. You have also been working more recently with some oral history um, projects. You've done a little bit of oral history with um, with a couple of students already, and I know you've got some more oral history planned. And um, what is oral history? So oral history, I can give you a sort of a, a definition. <laughs> um, it's it's really the the interviewing of eyewitnesses um, or participants in events of the past. And so using these interviews to write about history or for historical reconstruction. So it's a, it's a new, it's a, it's a, it's a type of source. It's a type of primary source. And you're getting these interviews for, from people who lived through a particular historical event. I mean, that's a, that's a sort of a very simple definition of what oral history is. One of the, another way of thinking about it, and and this is, I'm plagiarizing this from um, Professor Stephen High, who is the director of Concordia University's Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling. He has this wonderful term that he uses that oral history offers a different way of knowing. And, and I love that concept because that's what oral history and the, the beauty and the power of oral history is that it allows us to learn about the past through the people who lived through it. And often we get the stories from those, from the voices, the voices of the voiceless, mm. that the, the people who traditionally would not have left any records or written sources or whose experiences would not have been prioritized are are allowed to share their stories and to and to be part of that telling of history. And so it, it's um, it, it's it's really exciting. It's really a, a fun way of, of researching history and writing about the past and thinking about the past. 
And it's very collaborative. It is. You've got the historian interviewee. You've got uh, obviously the person they're, they're interviewing. And then you have that onward effect of people who will be using the material that is being, that has been collected. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that one of the things too, you mentioned kind of that relationship between the interviewer and the interviewee and, and, and oral historians talk about it being a dialogic relationship that, that the, that what you get through that, that testimony through that interview is that you develop a relationship between your participant or the person that you're interviewing. And again, like going back to, to Stephen High, and, and he's really done some amazing, amazing work. He, he also, you know, talks about how what we see happening through this dialogic relationship is that the, there's an expert authority and an experiential authority. So the historian who has done all the research, who knows what happened in the past, who has all the dates and the facts, who then goes to the person who experienced it. And so that's why there is that dialogic relationship, because they're sharing their knowledge with each other. And and you can create these, this this really, um, and and this is one of the things that, that, that oral historians really focus on is creating that um, that notion of a shared authority that there that the, the, the power dynamic is really important to establish a relationship of, of trust and of equality when you're when you're interviewing someone like that so what's what's kind of the process of doing oral history like how how, how does a historian prepare to sit down with somebody and record something and and I'm thinking here that our listeners may very well have family stories or things like that um, um, that they want to capture for future generations or to contribute to, to, to something larger. What, what kinds of tips um, do, do you have about that process? I, um, well, doing it as, a, as an academic when you're interviewing somebody that you don't necessarily know, there, there's all sorts of preparation that goes into it, as you said. So it, it's very much like you know, you're approaching a research topic uh, and, and, a, and a paper and you're looking for your sources. So you have a, a research um, question, an idea, and you research that event or that theme or that topic and your question. And, and then you start thinking about, okay, who, who would be able to provide me with stories? Who would have been there? Who would have experienced it? And um, whose who's points of view do I want for, to tell me the story. And, and maybe you want to cast your net really broadly and think, I want as many points of view as possible. And I want to be able to get a really good sense of how this particular event was experienced um, by a range of different people in different contexts. Um, and so then you, then you have to, you know, there's an ethics there's an issue of ethics and permission forms and all the rest of it, but but really going out and, and seeing how you can uh, enlist people or or um, encourage people to, to to share their stories with you, and that can be done through just you know posting something on social media, or putting a call in the paper. Uh, another another really cool way of doing this is through what are called um, community collecting events, where you would have an event, you would host an event and ask people to bring bring, you know, pair of, like memorabilia or papers or photographs about a certain event. And then at that event, they have the opportunity to maybe share a story with you that you could record. Or if there's not enough time, they can leave their contact details with you and you can set up a, um, an interview later on. When it comes to um, 
to recording the stories of family stories that that in itself I mean it's it, it's it's a wonderful a wonderful thing to do and, and to, to capture that family lore it's, it's different though because you are working with somebody who's a family member and um and so there, there's some really interesting work that's been done on sort of the difference between kind of family lore and recording those family stories and an oral history but definitely you can you can approach the, the recording of your family's stories using those same methods of, of um, those, those oral history methods. And, and, and certainly in a, the course that I taught last year with my this, this Making History in Niagara course, I had my students just as a little activity to get them thinking about oral history. I had them do a very quick interview with um, either a family member or a friend and, um, and there was a very specific question that they would ask, and and the the impact or the, the the feedback that I got from from that was was really amazing, and and the students I think were in some cases really surprised by what they learned. Um, one example was a, a student who learned all this stuff about his father that he, that his father had never shared with him before, because the they, they were talking about the, the question that I asked them to to ask their friend or family member was because this was kind of a sport-related um, project that we were working on, to ask them what their, their most memorable sport memory was or most important sporting memory, mm. either amateur sport or, a, or a, you know, something that they've seen in a professional sport memory. And this one student um, was, was talking about how his father had witnessed the Blue Jays winning the, the World Series while he was on tour. Um, he was in the Navy and his ship was docked in, in the States and all of these Canadian um, naval Navy guys watched the game. And, and he then started telling his son about what it was like serving in the Navy at the end of the Cold War and um, all of these stories about his service that he'd never told his son before. And so that one, that one memory opened up this whole basket of, of a treasure trove of, of stories. And, and that was one of those, I guess, coming back to that question you asked a little while ago about these really, these memorable moments in teaching. And that was one that really stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. That gives me goosebumps just to, just to hear it. <laughs> so your, your work with oral history has really revolved around sport and oral history. And, um, last year, Last summer, I guess, you worked with a fourth year student, Adam Williamson, and the Niagara on the Lake Tennis Club member, Rosemary Goodwin, um, on a special project. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that project and, and what it led to? That was, that was again, one of these, I was, I was thinking about how when you start working with community, you, you can't stop. <laughs> because you realize how how much how much fun it is and how many great projects there are and you just want to do more more of it but also the more people you network with the more people there are who sort of appear in your life and and to who have these these interests that that you have in common and you want to work together so so rosemary goodwin um this all came out of the work that i was doing putting together this collection of oral history interviews for the Canada Games, for this Canada Games collection that I was going to be using in my course, where my students would have access to these stories about the Canada Games for the creation of, a, of, a, of an exhibit to launch for the Niagara Summer Games in 2022. At the time, it was still 
slated for 2021. And I was recording these interviews and or I was starting to set things up. And I was working really closely with Julie Stevens, who is working on Canada Games. And and she and I had been, she'd been assisting me and putting me in touch with Canada Games Council people to arrange these interviews. And in a, during a conversation with Julie, she said, oh, by the way, um, a friend of mine, um, Rosemary Goodwin, um, whose husband or late husband, Don Good, Goodwin, was very um, much involved in the Canada Games and especially in these, the early years of the Canada Games. Uh, she lives in Niagara-on-the-Lake. She's a past president of the Niagara-on-the-Lake Tennis Club. And we were chatting and it turns out that she's putting together a history of the club. And... Um, and I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And she said, yeah, it's, she's really interested in history. And, and I thought I should put her in touch with somebody in the history department. And so we had this conversation. And so so Rosemary was um, her COVID project, she called it this. After things shut down last March, she um, decided that it was the 50th anniversary of the Niagara on the Lake Tennis Club that was, was coming up later that summer. And so she decided to go through all of the old papers and write a history and had heard about the fact that I was working on this oral history for the Canada Games and thought that it sounded like something that might work really well alongside the more traditional history that she was writing for, for the club. And I said, oh, that sounds amazing. And she said, if you have a student who wants to work on this project, I would love to work with a Brock student on something like this. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I have a student who'd be interested in this. And and um, Adam had already contacted me and said, you know, if there are any projects or any, if you need research assistance. And, and so I wrote back to him and I said, hey, I think I might have a project for you. Can you put together a proposal and we'll see if we can get you some funding to work on this? And we got the funding and Adam worked really closely with Rosemary on that project. And uh, not only on that project, but at the same time, as Adam's work was beginning and um, I was supervising him and and Julie was co-supervising him on that project. And Julie and I thought, hang on, we've got the Canada Games collection Adam's doing this oral history collection on Niagara Lake Tennis Club. And Julie and I had already started talking about maybe collaborating on a women's hockey collection. And we thought, we've got all these oral history collections that revolve around sport. Why don't we actually have them all housed within the same, um, under the same umbrella or within the same space, wherever we, we, um, wherever we put these? And we knew from the get-go that we wanted to make these interviews open access and interactive and available to the public. Um, and so that's how the, the SOHA, the Sport Oral History Archive, was born, was as we were working with Adam, as we were working um, with, with um, my research assistant, Jessica Lenzel, on the Canada Games project, this larger project kind of emerged. And, uh, and, and Adam was really central to those early stages of us you know, setting up the SOHA and working through things like ethics and permissions and digital infrastructure and how we were going to present this material and what kind of material we wanted in this archive and what the what the mission would be for for the SOHA. So so he was working on this, you know, his project with the tennis club, but he was really instrumental in in the founding of, of the SOHA too. And I'm going to include a link to the Brock News article where I interviewed Adam about his his experience. And it seems like he really enjoyed his his experience and got a lot out of it. And um, of course, anything done during the pandemic is not without its challenges. 
Um, but it sounds like it was a really, really rewarding project. So I want to move into talking about what I guess is your big project these days, which is this course designed to go along with the Canada Games course. So with uh, so a little bit of background to that is that Canada Summer Games scheduled to be held originally 2021, now postponed to 2022. Um, some of the events are being held at Brock University, uh, but Brock created uh, funding opportunities for the creation of new courses and experiential learning around, around the Canada Games. And you have developed a course that I think has already run in a modified, perhaps, fashion. And you're going to be working with your students with these oral histories that you have collected from across the country. So tell us a little bit more about that course and what it's doing and how it tying in with the games? So the course, um, I taught it for the first time last year when we thought the games were going to be happening in 2021. And the course is called Making History in Niagara. And the course is designed in such a way that it is not always going to be about Canada games, that it is a, a course that really introduces students to public history and to how history is presented, interpreted, as well as consumed by the public in different public settings. So museums, but things like historic plaques, monuments, plays, music, musical theater, all, all these different ways in which we're presented with, with history in, in these public fora. And, and, the, and the Canada Games was kind of the theme for that first launch of, of the course. And so students learned about kind of theory and methods and case studies on how different histories and difficult histories are presented in, in museums and um, monuments and, you know, the interaction between heritage, history, memory. We talked about oral history as well in the course and um, things like shared authority, the concept of decolonizing the museum, lots of, lots of things that, that, um, that public historians and, and you know, museum um, curators have to work through and are grappling with right now. And, and so the students learned about this in theory, and then they put it into practice by building um, what originally was going to be you know, actual physical <laughs> uh, displays. But because of COVID, we turned this into a digital ex um, exhibition. And the concept was this notion of, of threads through time. And that was that's the name of the, of the exhibit. And the idea for threads through time uh, came about uh, because the Canada Games, there's a few different reasons behind this, but the Canada Games, one of their sort of their motto is that the, uh, the the games strengthen the fabric of Canada through the power of sport. And I really like that notion of fabric. And I was thinking, well, how is fabric made? It's made with thread and how that thread is woven together. And so I thought about all these stories uh, from across Canada, from across the region, um, from across time are woven together to make us who we are and, and, and shape our identity. And so the idea for the, for the exhibit of Threads Through Time was then to also take the concept for the games, which was developed by the Niagara Host Society, which is this concept of 13 for 13. So we have 13 provinces and territories. We have 10 municipalities or 12 municipalities in Niagara plus the region, so 13 entities. And um, that each one of the 13 provinces and territories would be partnered with um, a region or a, a municipality in Niagara for the games. And so there would be cultural programming in each of the municipalities to reflect the province and territory that they've been partnered with. And I love this idea. I thought this was really cool because it would be a really cool way of exploring connections between Niagara 
and the rest of Canada and doing it through the pairings of, of and those pairings had been already settled by they, they've been set out by the host society so we had these pairings and so we were looking for connections how do we connect the the region to the province or the territory and, and thinking about it in terms of larger themes within Canadian history and um, and also connecting it to Canada Games history as well. So we have all these different things kind of woven together, local history, provincial, national history, sport history, Canada Games history. And so the so what ended up being created was um, a story map in which each of the 13 pairings, so province and territory, uh, province and municipality pairings, has these 13 threads that come out of it. And so starting with this one kind of node or starting point or a site, and then from that 13 threads kind of tail out and in some ways kind of connect to other ones. So on a map, you really see this amazing kind of connection that we're all connected across time and across place and um, and through and in some cases through Canada Games and some of the sort of um, stories from, from past Canada Games. So it was a really exciting project because it got students thinking about how, how do you do public history? How do you make an exhibit? How do you make it interactive and engaging for, for your audience? But also just doing a deep dive into local history and deep dives into provincial history that um, and the kinds of things that that the students were able to find out and the really fascinating stories that then had these amazing connections to to uh, to, to other stories sort of on the other side of the, the country were, were really exciting. And, and one of the things that really struck me, so the whole purpose, the whole starting point for making that Canada Games oral history collection was to provide additional material for my students to use when they were building these exhibits. And so I got to meet all these amazing um, people, so pat, so athletes who'd competed at the Games, coaches, people who worked for, for different provincial missions, premiers, uh, Canada Games, past Canada Games presidents, uh, just all sorts of amazing people from coast to coast. And But one thing that always came back was how, um, first of all, that so few people know about the games, unless you participated in the games or your community hosted the games, or you had a friend or family that participated in the games, you probably don't know much about, if anything, about the Canada Games. So it's this hidden gem. Uh, the Canada Games is a hidden gem. and um, But the benefits of these games to youth um, sports, to the host communities, the long-term benefits that um, aren't measured in numbers, that are measured in these stories that people tell about, the profound impact that these games have had on them, on their careers, on their outlook, on their understanding of Canada and who they are and, and their, their sense of identity. It was, it was really quite something. And one of the things that then came out of the course was that the, the idea of these games is that you have these young athletes who travel to different parts of the country and learn about these other parts of Canada and these other um, cultures and communities and, and interact with each other. And that that is you know, an amazing experience for them. And that there is this kind of educational this, this is the importance of the edu- of education in these games. And what I felt had happened in the course was that my students had had that experience, that they had learned so much about, about Canada and, and about these, these, these local histories that 
are are so important that these micro histories have these really important profound implications and, and ramifications and so it ended up having this 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 an unexpected um, impact or an unintended consequence of actually mimicking or echoing the purpose of the Canada Games. That's really neat. Um, now, you had invited me um, to the virtual class when students presented their work. And as of our time of recording, it's not publicly available yet, but it will be at some point is the plan. Yeah. And uh, one of the, I just want to come back to this idea of threads and and tease out a few examples of uh, <laughs> um, for for our audience. The one that still sticks in my mind, I think the theme that they were looking at was education. And then they wound up looking at flight schools and they traced that all the way to uh, September 9-11. Um, do you remember enough of that one off the top of your head to give us a little kind of just just a, just a little taste of kind of where that thread went and, and how it developed? Because I think that was one of the more challenging pairings as well. Yeah, so that was um, that was the pairing that linked um, Lincoln and Newfoundland. And so the starting point for that was the Beamsville Aerodrome. And from the Beamsville Aerodrome, the students then threaded out and made these connections to okay this was a this was an aerodrome that was open during the first world war and um, trained pilots during the war and so they were looking at kind of war memorials and and the, the danger of flight and um the you know the, these very dramatic crashes that took place you know around around beansville and then they traced it to the um the the uh the group of seven, um, oh gosh, now I can't remember which which one of the group of seven it was, did these amazing aerial drawings of the Beamsville Aerodrome. And and so and and um, did these or these paintings from the sky ah. um, from from a plane from the Beamsville Aerodrome. And so they made the connection to the group of seven and connected um, this to Newfoundland through AY Jackson's work uh, painting the Labrador coast, but also A.Y. Jackson's relationship to Banting. So, um, so Banting was actually really good friends with A.Y. Jackson and the group of seven and was kind of an amateur painter. And he was actually killed in a plane crash mm-hmm. in Newfoundland that crashed in Newfoundland. So there were these multiple connections that linked Beamsville aerodrome through this, you know, plane crashes, group of seven, to Newfoundland and Banting and Group of Seven. And then also there was a connection to War Memorials. And so we talked, to, so they, they connected it to War Memorials in Newfoundland. And also just the fact that, you know, that, that Newfoundland wasn't part of Canada during the First World War. Um, but then this long, longer history of Newfoundland's um, importance geopolitically and and its um, its airports during the during the war during the Second World War during the Cold War, but then also the uh, the airports, um, the Gander Airport, um, which hosted these planes that were diverted after after nine eleven and hosted um, all these people and and the the musical um, Come From Away is is based on on that on that story of, of what happened after 9-11. And so they made these amazing connections. And then another connection, and this is all in the same exhibit part, like of the same thread, this is the same one, is that they connected military history to avi- and aviation history 
to Newfoundland, but then they brought it also back to um, sport because there was also there has to be a sport component. And so they talked about different regimental sport sporting teams and then also how the development of um, sports like wheelchair basketball and other the, the way in which sport was used for rehabilitation of soldiers after the war was also where sort of the Paralympics comes out of that tradition of how do we really rehabilitate our soldiers when, when they come home. And so they made that connection between between war, rehabilitation, sport, and then um, uh, Paralympics and, um, and, and, and that, that sort of the, the disabled athletes. That's fantastic. And I am really looking forward to whenever that project is ready for public consumption, because if that's one thread and there's 12 other threads, (laughs) I'm really curious to see where, where, where everything goes. Now, did the students select a topic, like the theme, did they settle, okay, we're going to do the theme of education? Was it, or was that theme part of something larger with the uh, Canada Games? We had um, one of the things that I did in the lead up to the course was that when I was putting together kind of ideas for how I would approach the interviews and, and the oral history component, I was thinking about how I was I wanted to kind of touch on particular themes. In, in my interviews. So one of the things with oral history, and I didn't mention this earlier on, is that there's different ways. We talked about, like you were asking, like how do you do oral history? There are different ways of approaching the interview. And so you can do it through, you know, either a very structured interview or semi-structured interview or totally unstructured, which is more sort of life story where someone will just talk about their whole life from start to finish with, with just a few cues here and there by the interviewer. Um, what I did for the oral history for the Canada Games collection was much more structured because I really, and, and I mean, it was structured and there was room for the, you know, a little bit less structure, but I, but there was, but I was guided by these particular themes and it was themes like education and gender and disability and equity and um, multiculturalism, um, black history, uh, first nations and indigenous uh, people. It was, it, there were all these different themes that I was, so that when I approached people and said, I'd like to talk to you and if you can speak about the games in relation to any of these particular themes, that would be wonderful. And can you identify which ones you would most like to, to speak about? And, um, and so we use those themes to kind of think about how we would approach the exhibit as well. And so we had these themes that we were working from. But what, what, um, what I ended up doing is that the students kind of provided ideas and, and proposals and then based on what the students had, had presented, I worked with two research assistants to help kind of shape what each one of the 13 exhi- sort of exhibits would look like um, so, that, so that we covered a different theme in each one and that there would be sort of this coherence to, to the whole thing because we had you know, these lots of different groups working on these things concurrently. And your approach in this whole class was a little different. Um, it, it wasn't what we might think of. Those of us who have had university history classes, maybe in, in, in the dark and distant past, it might be familiar with, with lectures and reading and that kind of thing. You kind of flipped this whole idea of classroom on its head and you approached it as a lab where you were, which 
is an idea that may not be as familiar. Um, we, we might be familiar with it from science or something like that, but not so much with history or humanities. What was that setting? What does it look like to, for a classroom to kind of function with this lab approach that you took? What I did is I told the students at the beginning of the term, I said, don't think of this as, uh, as, a, as a class and don't think of me as your professor. Think of me as the, the director or, or, and I said, I don't want you to think about me as your boss either, but kind of <laughs> think about this almost like a, a workplace environment where I'm your manager um, or I'm you know, in charge of the, the company. And we have these research assistants who are kind of the line managers and um, you're working in these teams, these research teams, and you're responsible for this. We're, we're working on this mega project together. And in order for that mega project to succeed, we all have to work on these sections of the big project. And so I kind of was overseeing the entire thing and could sort of see where everything was happening. And then the research assistants were kind of more on the ground, um, helping with what was going on in those individual groups and providing feedback and support, and then bringing that information back to me. And then I, and then we could kind of consult and and come back to the groups to, to just to check in with them. And so it. It was, uh, it was challenging for sure. And um, having never done it like that myself, there was a lot of kind of learning stuff kind of on the fly. And, um, but, I, but I think what it achieved was that it, it provided this very different workspace for the students to engage in. And one of the things that really struck me in their final reflection pieces that they, that they wrote was that some of them had either never done group work before or had done group work before and had hated it. And generally, the, the students were actually really positive about the experience of that group work because of the way that it was designed, that there was, that they worked together in groups, that there was somebody who was kind of coming in and kind of assisting them every once in a while, um, that there was a um, significant amount of autonomy, but at the same time, they weren't totally left to figure out on their own. And, and, I, and certainly, I, I'm, there's certain, a lot of things that I'm going to kind of change moving forward and, and improve upon. And, and the, the reflections were really, really helpful to help me think about how, how it all worked and fit together. But I, I, I like that idea of, 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 the, of providing students with that new way of kind of thinking about what they're doing and the skills that they're learning. So much of it was really skill-based. So what, what skills are you gaining working with a team? And um, how can you take those outside the classroom? How can you take them into other classes, but also how are you going to take those into uh, a job or how are you going to kind of pitch those skills to a potential employer? Um, I think things that you learned about yourself and how you work in a group and, um, and also just the, the, the skills that you developed along the way. So that was, it was very interesting. It was a very interesting kind of experiment and, and one that, um, as I said, some, some things I'm definitely going to, to, to change a bit, but I, I liked the the overall kind of approach of it. And it's interesting too, because they sort of wound up with a f- sort of finished product at the end of it. So you're not even really assessing them on the final product. How did you assess students on that? Just out of curiosity. So a lot of it was like, how are they working as a team? How are they communicating not only with each other, but with me and the, and the research assistants? Um, is their work on time? Is, um, you know, were they delivering everything um, on time? And even though the final assignment wasn't necessarily assessed, like I would assess a, a research paper, I was still, I still graded them on 
the quality of the work that they produced up until that point. So um, was, was a lot of additional work going to be needed after they'd, they'd finished the, the course? Um, did, was, um, had, they, had they done all the things that were required up until that point? And, um, and also looking at things like how, how were, they, were they working together? Were they helping each other out? Mm. Um, were they, um, was anybody, was, was there, was there some, some kind of leadership? I, I didn't, I didn't assign leaders for each of the groups. And one group, interestingly enough, no leader actually emerged. They, they, they had this great sort of shared leadership and they worked really, really well together because they had excellent communication skills and the work that they produced was, was phenomenal. And then you had other groups that where there, a leader had emerged, but you could see that there was some tension within those groups where um, there wasn't always necessarily that they didn't really want to do what the leader was doing and wanted to kind of do their own thing. And, and so it, it was interesting to sort of see those dynamics and how the students dealt with those dynamics as well. And so how they actually were able to uh, engage in you know, conflict resolution and uh, managing their project like that was, um, it was something that's very hard to actually assess because I wasn't there all the time. I had to assess this based on mm. kind of the, the feedback that they were giving me, the work that they were doing and submitting and, and assessing it that way. So, um, so that was really, really challenging. And having spoken to other uh, faculty members who work on similar projects in different disciplines, they say that this is the eternal challenge of how, how exactly do you assess and how, and how do you assess the skills, like the, the, the level of skill that they've achieved. Mm-hmm. So, um, so again, like I, I learned a lot and there are a lot of things that um, I've subsequently like been taking notes and incorporating into the next version of the course, which I'm offering again in the fall and it's going to look very different. So I'm going to do a plug. I'm going to do a plug for the course next year. That was so going to be my next question. That I want to plug. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so please the, plug the course. <laughs> so the first one, uh, so again, so this is history three FO two making history in Niagara, which is going to also be Canada games, but it's going to be really different. So one of the things that came out of that first version of the course was that I'd always sort of imagined that, um, the first half of the, it's a full year course. So the, the fall term would be all about theory, methods, case studies, um, familiarizing yourself with like what is public history, what is heritage, what is memory, all these things. And what is decolonizing the museum, what is shared heritage, all these, these things. And then the winter term, the students would apply that knowledge through this big project. And what ended up happening is that that the students didn't necessarily see clearly enough how what they learned in the fall term was directly implicated in what they were doing in the, in the winter term. And what I'm doing now is kind of in weaving the two terms together a little bit more. So there still is going to be this major project the students are going to be building for the Canada Games for at Brock. So last year, it was a purely digital project. This year, knock on wood, we're going to be at some point in person, and students will actually design physical exhibits that are going to be deployed, scattered across Brock campus at the different locations, um, either in sites where students and athletes and families will be wandering during the games or at the actual um, venues that um, are on Brock's campus, as well as at the new Canada Games Park. 
And so, so the students themselves will develop these projects and they'll be done um, with the support of the Canada Games Council, as well as with special collections and, um, and thinking about Brock's history, sport history, Canada Games, and these really cool kind of interactive exhibits throughout campus. So the students, they're going to figure that out next winter. But what I'm doing in the, in the fall term is that instead of it being strictly just text-based and case studies and just learning all the prep for the actual doing, there's also going to be a kind of a, a practical component as well. And so I've incorporated a work integrated learning component in the fall term that then provides them with kind of that practical experience that they can then, so they can take the theory and the practice and apply both to their major project in the winter term with um, a lot more kind of um, integration of additional kind of things to think about as they're working on the, the major project. So I'm hoping that this will provide more of a bridge between the fall and the winter term. But the exciting thing is that for that fall term, the work integrated learning piece is going to be done in collaboration with the Niagara-on-the-Lake um, Historical Society and Museum. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> and um, so what the students are going to be doing is they will be assisting and, and collaborating and receiving hands-on training from museum staff to build an exhibit. And the exhibits that they were going to be working on are going to be homed in the Niagara-on-the-Lake Museum's Tiny Museum, which is um, this wonderful, and I don't think it's, I think that they, they haven't actually had a formal public exhibit of it yet because of COVID, but it's this tiny little, it's based on the tiny house movement, tiny home movement. And it's a, a little kind of almost like a shed that has four display cabinets inside it and it can be moved to different venues. So it can be moved to a school or a library or to a community center, depending on what's in the, what's in the exhibit. So, and I'm so excited because the students will actually, they get to pick the artifacts from the collection that they want to put into their display case. They're going to learn how to write um, you know, the, all the, the, do the wording and the, um, the descriptions for all the, their artifacts. And so they get this real hands-on learning experience that they can then take along with all the stuff that they've been reading about and other examples of exhibits, they can take that and the hands-on training and then apply it in their own, in their own project. So I, I'm, I'm really excited because I think that that might've been kind of the missing link to a certain extent. And it was, it was very difficult to do in COVID, but I think that it was that, that there was kind of that, there was a, there was a stage missing of the reading about it. And then the actual, like doing it on your own, there needed to be that sort of in that, that kind of guidance. Will they be building on the work that your students did this past year, or will they be starting completely from scratch with new themes and new topics? So they'll be um, have access to the work that the students did last year. And one of the things that they can do is they can take that project and maybe create kind of an ancillary side project that would go alongside it. It would it'd be, it'd be up to them. Um, another thing that I was imagining is that if, if a team in that new group wants to create some kind of an information panel or there's even like, an, like a little exhibit in a case, there could also be like a little shout out to the Threads Through Time project with a QR code so you can access it. And, um, and so these, these exhibits will be talking to each other and informing each other. Great. So. so our listeners can stay tuned to the Brock News next year to catch the stories as, as this project unfolds. So you've got me convinced to sign up for, hist for History 3FO2. Um, you mentioned two courses. What was the other one? 
So the other course is my new fourth year honors seminar that is a full year course. It starts uh, this coming September. It's for History 4FO2. It's also cross-listed with Canadian Studies. And it's called Voices from the Past Oral History. And it's an oral history course, again, um, in some ways um, kind of modeled on the 3FO2 kind of structure of a full year course. But there too, you know, rather than fall term being all methods, methodology, historiography, case studies, and then the second term, build an oral history collection, it's going to be a lot more integrated. So the, the, but the, but the end product for these fourth year students is the creation of an oral history collection that would then be housed in the SOHA. And um, yeah, so it's really, it's really, really exciting. And so the students will build from start to finish everything from developing permission forms to recording interviews, creating transcripts, uploading stuff, creating metadata, you know, even earlier, you know, like finding people to interview. And that too, there's going to be a work integrated learning component in the fall term. And that is going to be a community collecting event. Oh, fantastic. And the theme that I've already, I've already chosen a theme because I, I thought I'd, I'd like to be able to get things set up prior to the course starting so that the students know from the outset what it is that the large project is going to be when they starting in September. And this is going to be an oral history of the Garden City Arena. So the Garden City Arena or Jack Gate Cliff Arena, it's unclear when, when it's going to be decommissioned, but um, it's probably not going to be operational for much longer, especially after the Canada Games Park with its four pad opens for public use after the games. And it got me thinking about what happens when we lose these spaces, these places, these sites that are so important to a community's history. It was opened in 1938. The Jack A. Cliff Arena was a, it was a, it was a Great Depression era makework project. It was um, the site of, you know, it was, it was, it hosted the circus. It was the OHL's team before the Meridian or uh, arena before the Meridian Center was opened. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of amazing history and stories embedded within those walls. And, and, and I was thinking about like how you capture those stories and how do you keep something alive after it's physically going to be gone. And that's, again, coming back to some of the, one of the reasons why oral history is so powerful is that it allows you to capture these stories of places that disappear or that eventually have, have gone. And, and I thought, well, this is, this is the time to do it. And so my idea is that, that the students would actually go into the arena and capture the soundscape of the arena and interview people in the arena and have them talk about some of their experiences and um, their relationship to that, to that arena. And the, the importance of that arena to St. Catherine's community. So that work integrated learning opportunity is going to be done in collaboration with um, the St. Catherine's Museum. And, uh, and so that's one of the, one of the projects that, and that, that'll also allow students to then um, start finding people that they could then interview um, later on for the, the oral history collection. Excellent. And that's that little blue, I call it the little blue arena whenever yes. I drive drive past it on Geneva Street, um, just near the 406 there for the, for those who, who may not be familiar with it. It usually has a big pile of snow outside it from the ice. <laughs> not this year, unfortunately, because, because of the pandemic. That sounds like a really exciting project. Um, so those are two great courses. I think they're going to keep you busy and uh, definitely keep, keep our students busy. 
At this point, do you have any anticipated uh, launch date for the SOHA um, to be publicly available? Well, we had originally thought that we would have it ready to go by September. We're still hoping September, but it may not be until kind of early in 2022. Okay. Um, as I said, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been a work in progress. <laughs> and, um, and with COVID, it, it kind of adds that extra layer of, of, of challenges. But, but we will be promoting it far and wide as soon as it's available. And we're really excited about it because, as I said, those, those stories that we've, we've captured um, – some of them are, are it, one of the things that's really struck me, I, I'm not a sport historian, and I've suddenly found myself doing all this sport-related history. And one of the things that's really struck me is that sport acts as this fantastic kind of launching point or vehicle for exploring all sorts of really important themes in history and, and really thinking about the impact that sport has had on communities and that you can explore it from the perspective of gender and class and race and deindustrialization and gentrification. And um, one of the things that we're looking to do with the SOHA is as we start developing more, more and more collections, we're really focused not on just the stories of you know, famous athletes or um, you know, famous coaches, but really thinking about how sport has impacted our communities. And so interviewing the people uh, and, and, and creating these collections, focusing on, um, you know, community sports and cultural, like cultural leagues and church leagues and um, worker you know, factory leagues, like there were fa factory and, and, and workplace teams, and, and then exploring all the themes that come out of those interviews. And, and it's actually, it's so rich. And this is something that's really struck me is that it's a, it's a very, very rich sort of way of entering into kind of social history, urban history, rural history, local history, but also thinking about it again in, these, in, these, in this more global context as well. So even if you're not sport oriented, there's an angle in there uh, for you as a as a researcher, as a student. There's there's a way to to dig into whatever your interest is, really. Definitely, and I think that this is what I really am excited about with the Garden City Arena project is that it's sport related, but that arena is way more than just the site of, of sporting events. There's there's so much scope, regardless of what your your research interests are. You'll you'll find an angle that speaks to you and your interests. We will have to check in with you next year and see see what what your you and your students have uh, produced. So thank you so much for talking with us today, and thank you so much to our listeners for joining us. You are welcome to engage with us on social media at Brock Humanities, and of course, there's lots of links in the footnotes for this episode to learn more about Dr. Vlasic's work, her courses, and the history department at Brock in general. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Forward. Find all of our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, rockview.ca forward slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Rock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us as well on your favorite podcasting app so you will never miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Alison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. 
Our sound design and editing is done by Nicole Arndt. Theme music is by Khalid Imam. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for studio and web support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.